Ladies and gentlemen, can you please give a warm welcome to the speakers of this fourth plenary session of today's Asia Forum and its chair, Dr. Jazim Ahmad. Good afternoon. Welcome to the final, fourth and final session of this uh, wonderful day. And uh, the fourth session is called uh, Finance and the, and the International Monetary Regime. Um, let me begin by introducing myself as the chair and moderator for this final session. My name is Jasim Ahmed. I'm the Secretary General of the Islamic Financial Services Board, which is located here in Kuala Lumpur. We have three uh, very distinguished uh, participants in the panel today. First, of course, is uh, the lead discussant, who is uh, Professor Charles Goodhart, and uh, he does not need an introduction, but he is a f one of the world's great uh, thinkers uh, in uh, financial sector regulation and supervision and monetary policies. He has had a long and distinguished career, which has embraced the London School of Economics, where he was the professor, the Norman Sussenau Professor of Banking and Finance, as well as the Deputy Director of the LSE. He has served in the Bank of England as Chief Advisor, as well as a member of the Monetary Policy Committee. He has also had a very distinguished international career in which he has participated in the Bank for International Settlements, as well as in the uh, work of the Basel Committee. Let me also point to a wonderful book he's written uh, on the history of the Basel Committee. Uh, it's a very expensive book. And... Uh, <laughs> And Professor Goodhart has kindly advised that you should... Of course, you're LSE student, so you can probably afford to buy this book, but uh, uh, to ask your libraries to buy the book. Uh, it's, a, it's the best book there is on the Basel Committee, not only because it's the only book there is on the Basel Committee, <laughs> but uh, because it, he has brought to it his tremendous and expansive intellectual gifts. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I, I have known of his work and have participated with him in the Basel Committee, and I think you'll all agree that Professor Goodhart brings to his work uh, in tremendous intellectual achievements, plus an extraordinary ability to persuade people. Finally, he's a straight shooter. Ladies and gentlemen, Professor Charles Goodhart. Thank you very much, Jasim. Uh, I had the privilege yesterday of being invited to the new building of the Bank Negara, uh, where I saw the center uh, where the Islamic Financial Services Board meets, and it's, I can tell you it's extremely impressive. Uh, it also brought back to me the consideration that one of the problems that the Western economies faced uh, was over-reliance on debt. And in the crisis that we've had since 2007, 2008, that has certainly been a major stumbling block. And I think that there is no doubt that if we could move our financial system somewhat more 
in the direction of a relationship between financial intermediary and borrower that was based more on partnership and on an equity rather than a debt relationship, that this would be to the benefit of all. Um, I don't think in the West any longer that there is a dismissal of Islamic finance simply because it has the word Islamic in front of it. I think there is an acceptance of its virtues. The question is simply an operational one of how we can move somewhat in the direction of the kind of financial system that you're actually already uh, employing here in the ASEAN countries. Now, um, I'm going to be uh, talking now uh, on a sort of subsector uh, of the wider discussion in the previous session, which was on international relations more generally. And I'm going to be talking much more about international monetary relationships or the international monetary regime. Uh, that regime, the post-war monetary regime, was set at the Bretton Woods Conference held in the autumn of 1944, some 70 years ago. And in fact, uh, I'm with a group who are going to try and organize a rerun uh, of Bretton Woods. Uh, but what I want to do uh, this afternoon is to discuss... Uh, some of the shortcomings. Now, in 1944-1945, the United States was in a hegemonic state, to use the phrase that was used in the previous session, that was probably hardly ever surpassed, uh, if possibly only uh, by China in the Asian era uh, and Rome, imperial Rome in Europe. And in 1944-1945, the U.S. was really the only uh, major developed industrial country left standing. Uh, The Asian countries, Japan, Korea, and China, uh, were suffering the aftermath of war, uh, as was indeed the whole of Europe, including my own country, the U.K., which may have been left in some senses standing, but so enfeebled by the effects of World War II uh, that really we were, though I don't think we fully realized it at the time, a basket case. And so the Bretton Woods system was essentially set up as a hege- hegemonic system uh, that operated around the US dollar. And what is remarkable is that despite the change in the geographical structure of power, which Danny illustrated so uh, clearly in the previous session, that the U.S. and the U.S. dollar remains or retains its hegemonic stance within the international monetary system today. And one can ask exactly the question, why has that been? Uh, And there are a number of answers. And what are the potential contenders? Well, one contender which would have liked to have challenged the U.S. hegemonic status in the international monetary regime Uh, was Europe, or more precisely, the Eurozone. And the development of the Euro was, in some quarters, undertaken with a partial objective of becoming a rival to the US dollar. Now, that has not happened because of the woes and problems that the Euro system has been going through in the last five or six years. The Japanese, by contrast, never really wanted the yen to become a major international currency. 
And in any case, the last couple of decades since air crisis in 1990-91 has meant that the yen has fallen even further away from any possibility. Now that, of course, leaves China. But one of the problems, at any rate for the time being in China, is that no country can be a hegemonic or really even pull anything like its full weight within the international system is a country which still maintains exchange controls, uh, where there is no freedom of capital flows. And although China is moving and thinking about trying to make the renminbi internationally more usable, it cannot really get rid of exchange controls and its capital controls over capital flows until it has sorted out its domestic financial problems, which effectively means making the structure of interest rates domestically within China uh, abide much more by the market laws of supply and demand. Now, I think that the the Chinese are moving in that direction, though the speed sometimes seems to be rather slow. Um, But the move towards a more market-based system uh, of financial intermediation within China with fewer direct controls on what interest rates can be, be set, um, really will be part and parcel of a much wider shift in the business model uh, of the Chinese economy. And I think one of the issues that we're all waiting to see uh, with bated breath is exactly how successfully uh, China will shift its business model from one that is effectively based Uh, on exports and investment um, to one that is based much more uh, on domestic consumption. And you cannot run a country with an investment output ratio of over 50% without running into major distortions and doing so uh, relatively quickly. But let me get back to the question of the U.S. being a hegemon. There are various problems on this. The first one is that the U.S. authorities, particularly the monetary authorities, the Federal Reserve, uh, effectively take no concern when Mm -hmm. setting their policies uh, for the rest of the world. Now, you may say, in principle, that this is a bad thing, but in practice, as long as we run the Westphalian political system, whereby political legitimacy is national, there is no alternative. If the Fed tried to undertake policy not in the best interest of the United States because it actually might benefit, uh, if you like, the rest of the world, the Fed would be subject to congressional oversight and the Congress would take powers away from the Fed quicker than you can say Jack Rabbit or whatever else it is you say, Jack Robinson. Um, Indeed, one of the things that worries me is that some of the policies which are in the interest of the United States might not be seen as such by Congress. Perhaps the single measure that was most effective in stopping the great financial crisis becoming much, much, much worse was the extension of U.S. dollar swaps by the Fed to a range of central banks around the world. And I'm always particularly worried that Congress might see this as the Fed lending money Mm. to others, in other words, not Americans, and say, stop it. And if that should happen, 
and we have another financial crisis, then the world really would cave in, given that the US dollar remains the hegemon. There are also other problems as well. If the hegemon is a net predator, as, for example, Germany is within the eurozone, then effectively there's a problem because in order to keep the system working, there's got to be a continual flow of funds, of capital, from the hegemon to the rest of the system. And if there should be a stop to those flow of funds, then the periphery suffers, as indeed occurred in the 19th century when Britain was the hegemon and when the flow of funds of capital from Britain and France to the gold standard periphery uh, dried up, then the periphery got into trouble and had to deflate quite sharply. If the hegemon, however, is a net debtor and is running large current account deficits, then the problem goes the other way, and the problem is that the world may be more inflationary, as was the reason why the Germans effectively broke up the Bretton Woods system in 1971, because they did not want to go on importing uh, inflows uh, of effectively of base money uh, into Germany. The second problem of the Bretton Woods system is asymmetry. The debtors have to adjust because they run out of reserves and there's no effective alternative, but they must adjust, but the creditors don't. Uh, In the Bretton Woods process, uh, Keynes tried really with great originality and Mm. and great foresight uh, to try and make the system more symmetrical, through his bank or procedure, which effectively led to automatic penalties, not only on debtors, but also on creditors. Not surprisingly, since the US was at that time by far the biggest creditor, by far the most powerful country, that the US under Harry Dexter White refused to take or have any part of that whatsoever. So that the way that the international monetary system was set up and remains is that there is a bias that the surplus countries are, in effect, untouchable. There is no real pressure that the international bodies like the IMF can impose on uh, the creditor countries. And so all the pressure is almost always on the debtor countries to adjust. And the IMF is really there in order to make Uh, the adjustment of the debtor countries to facilitate that uh, adjustment. Um, The IMF has no grip at all on the large surplus countries. Um, And it's very difficult to tell the surplus countries that they ought to adjust because the surplus countries will always respond by saying we're in surplus because we're wonderful. We're wonderful, we're disciplined, we're competitive, we make products that the rest of the world wants to buy, and what should happen is that the rest of the world should be like us. The Eurozone is an absolutely perfect example, where the Germans argue that everybody else should be exactly like the Germans. There is absolutely no call on Germany to adjust, because they're doing everything right. Um, And the same is true of almost all other countries in current account surplus. We're in current account surplus because we're doing everything right. Why should we stop doing what is right? And for that kind of reason, you will not get an international monetary system where the surplus countries get put under pressure. 
So what kind of leverage can one possibly obtain? Well, one of the answers here is that the current account surplus of these credit countries is matched by an outwards capital flow. And in most cases, in very many cases, historically and currently, the advantages or benefits of that outwards capital flow have not been that obvious. The British did not make much money on their capital investments in other countries, much of which tended to default, including, I should add, two or three American states. The Mississippi and Alabama have never repaid the British, and when I go to New Orleans and remind them, they tend not to be very forthcoming. (laughs) I never understood quite why. Um, But the returns on capital outflows has been pretty poor. Um, If you ask If you say to the Chinese, what return are you getting on your holdings of U.S. Treasury bonds? Mm. Uh, The answer is not very much, particularly as as the the renminbi has appreciated against the dollar. It's been a pretty poor return. And Germany, the outflows, the capital flows of German banks in particular to countries like Spain and Italy have not done well, as you may imagine. So the kind of route that I think is more likely to be successful is not to tell the large surplus countries that you mustn't run a current account surplus because that runs into the kind of counter-argument that I just indicated. Instead, I think that what one should do is move much more towards having symmetric constraints on short-term capital flows. Uh, both outwards capital flows and inwards capital flows, such that if the capital flows become too large, there are constraints placed on both the outwards flow and on the inwards receipt uh, of such flows. And the the attitude, the thinking um, on capital constraints of one one form or another has changed remarkably since Malaysia did this, and successfully so in 1998, The world has changed, and we are now getting to a point in which these kind of capital limits on capital flows um, are considered with equanimity, if not necessarily always with favor. The question is how to do it, and one way of doing it is to piggyback it onto the macroprudential control mechanisms which are increasingly coming into favor uh, among the central banks around the world. One of the issues is how to do it, and the operational details on this are really quite tricky. Um, And nobody has worked it out exactly the best way of doing it. Uh, In the paper that I've got that lies behind these PowerPoints, I've made a couple of suggestions, or a number of suggestions, but the details still have to be done. Uh, much, Much more work has to be undertaken on it. But this is the kind of route to try and attack, in order to get more symmetry, into the international regime to do it through the capital account rather than to try and do it through the current account because you will never get the surplus countries uh, to adjust uh, their position when they're running a current account surplus. However, I want to end now by talking about the the changing structure uh, of uh, imbalances because we are so used to having a regular fixed kind of imbalances in the international monetary system, 
that there's a tendency to assume that these will go on forever. And I'd like to end by saying that I don't think they will, and that in the medium term, I think that they're quite likely to be some major adjustments, uh, which may make life easier, or they may make life more difficult. We will simply have to see. As you know, there are three groups, uh, China, Germany, and the oil producers, who are in significantly large surplus. And this is balanced effectively by the United States, which has been in large deficit. And that has been one of the reasons why, up till now, the international monetary system has been inflationary rather than deflationary. Now, all this may change for two main reasons. One of these is energy, and the other is demography. Uh, In energy... Uh, the discovery of shale oil and shale gas, a huge new availability of energy resources, spread quite right widely around the world. Yes, you have five minutes. And the development of, um, uh, of renewables, some of which I think are not a good idea, others of which uh, I think that there is a very considerable likelihood that innovation will bring Uh, a sharp, a reasonable further decline in relative costs. Um, My particular bet is on solar power, and my particular bugbear is on uh, on on-land wind power. Uh, But that's that's a different subject, and I'm not an expert on renewables. But anyhow, there is likely to be, I think, uh, particularly in the aftermath uh, of uh, Putin's uh, approach to the Ukraine, which has had the effect of making every country, and particularly in Europe, aware of the disadvantages of being too reliant on energy sources from abroad, which is going to make the opposition to fracking in those countries which have considerable reserves of shale oil and shale gas in Europe considerably less than it was before. So that the speed with which these resources will get utilized, as I think increased as a result. The effect of all of this will, I think, quite possibly, lead to downwards pressures on energy and oil, and that could well lead to a, uh, a, a shift whereby the current oil producers lose their surpluses, and whereby the U.S., which has been a major energy importer, comes into balance, which will change a great deal of the structure of the international monetary regime. In addition, we've got demography, and this is my final point. Those of you who are half my age uh, will remember that the 1980s were a time when people thought that the next millennium was going to be the Japanese Mm. millennium. And what happened in Japan was not, I would suggest, Uh, an enormous failure of policy. It was just a change in demography. Which main developed country, and here I'm excluding China and the Asian countries, has had the highest rate of growth of productivity per man hour? The answer is Japan, not the US or the UK or Germany or any of the European countries. The reason why Japan has changed from having one of the world's largest current account surpluses to having one of the world's largest current account deficits has been partly energy, again, the nuclear power stations. But it has also been demography. When you get a shift 
from a growing labor force to a country where the dependency ratio is rising very sharply, the old will consume, the young enable to, to enable the old to consume, the young will be taxed. And after they've paid the much higher taxes, they will consume much of the rest. Consumption ratio will bound to go up. When the consumption ratio goes up by leaps and bounds, the current account surplus will disappear like snows before the Washington spring. (laughs) And these demographic changes are happening. And they're happening in Germany now, and they will happen in China very shortly. So that the surpluses enjoyed by China and Germany will, and here I'm prepared to predict, since my prediction won't occur until after I'm probably dead, uh, so that in 15 years' time, I believe that both China and Germany will cease to have large current account surpluses. Where will the current account surpluses and the dynamism occur? It will occur in the South. What we're going to get, Danny, is not a change in the East-West balance of economic power, but a change in the North-South economic balance of power. Because what will happen is that northern Asia, Europe, and northern America, because of demography in large part, will slow and have large current account deficits. And the more dynamic, because faster population growing, South Asia, Africa, and Latin America will be the countries which have large uh, current account surpluses. So we'll get a shift in the balance of power. It won't be the, the dots going across the equator, what you're going to have to have is a dot going south. Mm. So next time you'll do that particular bit of the globe, sort of do (laughs) north-south as well as east-west. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Goodhart. Uh, Many uh, Wonderful thoughts there, powerful thoughts. I'm just struck uh, by the way that uh, your proposal for capital controls essentially mimics uh, the results that Keynes wanted to achieve through Bancor, to which Harry White, of course, said absolutely no, quote-unquote. And uh, as I take it, uh, if we had these capital controls put in before the Eurozone was put in place, it would have prevented those huge flows of capital from Germany taking place? No, because the problem here is that in the Eurozone, one of the key elements of the acquis of the Mm, community is that there should be no controls at all over any capital flows and no controls over any labor flows. So that the reason, one of the key reasons why I said it should be done piggyback on macro prudential instruments is it's not a specific capital control. But if if we were to put them in now, would it trigger... German flows of investment and capital into the Eurozone, into the periphery countries? No, because I, uh, the Germans have effectively been told by their media uh, that the periphery are lazy, corrupt, they don't uh, say that, they, they're piggy, that they're sponging off the German <laughs> taxpayer. One mustn't be too unkind to the Germans. Mm. If, the, if the situation was reversed, <laughs> And the British were the creditors, and the Germans were outside the EU. The British would be taking exactly the same position as the Germans. So it's, I, I'm, uh, I, the British would be at least, uh, I think, as self, um, 
concerned as the so Germans. You, so are. you don't see Germany as the hegemon of the future? No. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think uh, the next two speakers will be addressing some of the same issues from different points, points of, uh, from different perspectives. The first respondent is uh, a very distinguished person who will be known to all of you. Uh, he is Mr. Andrew Sheng, Tan Sri Sheng. Uh, Andrew was born in Malaysia, but he's no longer off Malaysia. He belongs to the rest of the world now. And uh, he has had a distinguished career as a regulator in Bank Negara Malaysia in, in the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, as well as being the chief uh, the uh, chairman of the Securities and Futures Commission uh, of Hong Kong. Uh, he is today sitting on multiple positions uh, as the president of the Fung, uh, Fung Institute, which is uh, the most, one of the newest and uh, surely one of the most productive and high-powered think tanks in the world. Uh, he has been for many years the chief uh, advisor to the Banking Regulatory Commission of China, which is surely the pivot point potential pivot point for the global economy in the next few years. Uh, he is an uh, advisor to the, uh, to the China Investment Corporation, the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world. In the world. He, too, is an enormously persuasive man, and it has been my privilege on numerous occasions to sit in a room with him while he spoke and persuaded, whether it was regulators, politicians, or st- uh, members of the financial sector, to a course of action, usually regional cooperation. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr... Tansri, uh, Andrew Sheng. Thank you very much, uh, Jasim, for the very kind words. Uh, I want to thank the LSE for, you know, you know, giving me the great honour of being uh, part- participating in this LSE uh, Asia Forum. This has been a real feast. Um, I think with uh, not just good food, but uh, great, uh, you know, thoughts and, 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 and opinions. And so in that tradition, uh, I, I want to make a confession. I am a LSE wannabe because I never got to LSE. But the very fact that I, uh, I have served uh, and I learned under Charles Goodhart, uh, certainly of five years uh, in the Hong Kong Monetary Authority where he was a member of the Exchange Fund uh, Advisory Council, uh, EFAC. Um, uh, I studied under him. I, you know, every time I met him, you know, I, I learned. And so, therefore, I consider myself an uh, LSE student uh, under Charles. <laughs> so, on that uh, note of pretense, let me uh, say that I agree with everything that uh, Charles has said. <laughs> and uh, since he's only done three slides, you know, the, the mark of a student is that if the teacher has only three slides, the student must give at least three times more uh, because we, we, we substitute quantity for, uh, for quality. But the, uh, I just want to supplement, I think, what Charles said. I think he said that the, the factors for the global imbalance was due to energy and demographics. Uh, but I would add two more factors, which is technology uh, uh, you know, and, um, and finance. And the reason why we want to talk about finance is because the whole morning we're talking about uh, military, security, uh, weapons of mass destruction, but the biggest weapons of mass destruction is truly finance. finance. And uh, and so what we now need to think about is how finance uh, is is, is changing the world uh, today. Now, uh, you know, the the heart of the problem, uh, as Charles said, uh, is that the... The, the hegemonic uh, currency is the dollar. It's very, very dominant. Uh, and, 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 and Janet Yellen, in her confirmation, basically said, 
repeated what it was said. You know, the emerging market problem is not her problem in the withdrawal of uh, tapering. So uh, the other academics like Subramaniam, uh, Danny Roderick, uh, uh, you know, uh, basically said, well, you know, you guys deserve it. You know, you had it good when interest rates were low. You didn't do sufficient reforms. And so you need to take care of themselves. But, of course, everything is relative because whatever you do uh, will also affect you in terms of feedback, and that's exactly what, you know, we're going through now. So now what's the basic, uh, very, very quickly, you know, uh, painting of the scenario? Uh, QE will, 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 will definitely, uh, uh, withdrawal QE will definitely happen. Europe, in my view, after Crimea, is going to be much more focused on economic uh, recovery and therefore must seen bottom. The bottom line, therefore, is that the hot money will begin to flow back to the advanced countries with lower risks. The fragile five will, sh- will see higher interest rates, bursting of bubbles, uh, and generally overall slowdown, and China is going through a very complex adjustment uh, so that, you know, we, because we are all moving from the old industrial revolution, and this is where I... I somewhat disagree with, I mean, I'm going to be controversial, disagree with both Kishore and uh, Danny, that it is not inevitable that uh, 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 the center of gravity will move linearly uh, from the west to the east. Because uh, I participated in the study uh, commissioned by the ADB with uh, Rajanath, where we said, you know, yes, by 2050, the signs are that Asia will account for half of world GDP, half of world financial assets, but it is neither preordained nor destined. It is, you know, we, 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 there's a lot of mistakes going to happen, and in my view, it's going to be like a crab uh, that's moving sideways and maybe backwards, and particularly with climate warming, we may not be a green crab, we may be a boiled one. <clears throat> now, the, the, the issue, in my view, is that Asia is today, after 35 years, maybe 50 years, led by Japan, the world's factory. But it is in the old industrial revolution. The West has already moved into the new industrial revolution of low, low energy consumption, you know, in fact, becoming energy producers, as Charles says, with shale oil. They've moved into high technology. Value creation is all there. And we've ended up with the polluting industry, uh, low labor productivity, uh, excess capacity. We will see massive Schumpeterian uh, creative destruction. And on that basis, Asia really faces very huge challenges. It is not about the leaders, the leaders' world. The world is leaderless because we, our old maps, our old compasses, does not guide us anymore. Technology has changed the game. Technology is destroying jobs all over the place and destroying jobs because, you know, your, you know, Nokia could be number one today, tomorrow is history. Right? I mean, I mean uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, these are issues, the speed of the change are simply overwhelming. And, and, and therefore, you know, it, you know, we need to think about this very rigorously. Now, even these imbalances that Charles talked about has shrunk very, very fast. Chinese, Chinese current, current account surpluses are down to 2%, and I would not be surprised if it goes to zero. I would not be surprised if the Japanese go into deficit because of the aging problems, etc., so a lot of this is, and we really look at all these charts about labor productivity, etc. The imbalances have already come square and, and maybe going to deficit. Now, how does this all this fit in with the yeah. international monetary system? 
This last crisis has demonstrated that the international monetary system as designed in Bretton Woods is, is broken, even in its revised form. What now matters is really central bank uh, swaps because the central banks stood you know, uh, uh, firmly anchoring the system when the whole system shook. And, and therefore, what I really wanted to be clear is if we were to look at this historically, the yen challenged the premier position of the dollar, and then we had the Asian financial crisis. The euro challenged the dollar, and had, we had the, the European crisis, in my view. And so, you know, the position of the dollar will not change very dramatically unless there are long periods of structural adjustments in, 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 Andrew, in, in fact, Andrew, you know, throughout the world. Andrew, but it's no longer, yes, I, I realize it. Five minutes. It is no longer the, um, sorry, I can't see the, the, the It's the, uh, five the minutes. Time. You've got five, five minutes, yeah. Okay. So, you know, we, we, we are seeing that the emerging markets have suddenly realized we are on our own. And, with, you know, we've built up all the reserves from Chiang Mai, with uh, 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 trying to use uh, our own swaps. But this, I just want to give you four simple facts. I want to close with four simple facts, right? First, global foreign exchange markets are trading $5.3 trillion a day. How much is global trade? $30 trillion. Roughly six days of trading foreign exchange of the real economy. In, you know, so the, the foreign exchange markets are highly volatile, Right? How big is the global monetary base? $6.6 trillion. Now, the very fact that the United States, and I agree with Kishore on this particular point, the United States not ratifying the quota increase of the IMF means that the World Bank, the ADB, and all the others will have difficulty raising capital. Now, in a stage when the burden of risks and adjustment it has now shifted from the advanced countries who have just gone through their crisis to the emerging markets. We need these multilateral agencies more than ever. But the, 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 the advanced countries have restricted their capital. So what is the numbers, right? The interesting point is that the Fed has told the rest of the world we're only giving five central banks, our major allies, $333 billion of dollar swaps to provide them with liquidity. What has the People's Bank of China done? It has signed 26 central bank swaps with, uh, uh, with uh, various uh, their trading partners valued at $426 billion. <coughs> Okay? And guess what? I just happened to sit on the International Advisory Council of the uh, China Development Bank, and when they gave me the balance sheet, I looked at it and I said... 8 trillion renminbi in balance sheet, that's larger than the IMF and the World Bank put together. Yeah. In fact, the Chinese Development Bank's loan book to Africa is twice larger than the World Bank alone. And that's just one Chinese bank, excluding the uh, import-export bank. So the, the game has changed dramatically. And unfortunately, we have no you know, proper systems to deal with uh, these particular issues. And on that basis, we need to really think through what is it that we need to replace this world, and we need greater leadership, not just from the advanced countries, but from the emerging markets, to think through how we can have greater global stability so that the economic center of gravity can switch 
to uh, uh, can can go as you know Danny has predicted from the east to the west, but from the west to the east, but that or, or from north to south, but that is not inevitable. I really want to stress this. What it now realizes is our forums like this, the LSE, uh, where we have great greater engagement and dialogue with each other, so that we do know global public goods. Uh, and intellectual ideas are the most important global goods that we need in the world today. On that note, thank you very much indeed, and I hope to have a better discussion. Thank you very much, uh, Andrew. Uh, some really arresting very thoughts. Good. And so just to recall if some, of the, some of the options that the two speakers have gone through if the U.S. Congress will not, not allow the Central Federal Reserve to provide swap lines to all our countries, if Ireland and Spain cannot incorporate themselves as bank holding companies in the state of Delaware and thereby get access to, to the U.S. Fed, and if the, if the IMF doesn't have the resources, what are the options? And Andrew has given us a, a, a startling insight into one possible line of hope, uh, a line of hope which I know Professor Danny Kwa has uh, also uh, elaborated on in many different ways. Uh, now, the next speaker will take up, is in fact responsible for some of the issues that Andrew has raised, Chiang Mai Initiative, the ADB 2050 uh, report. Uh, the next speaker is uh, Rajat Mohan Nag. Rajat Mohan Nag um, is also someone who has, was originally from a central bank, in his case, the Bank of, of Canada. Uh, he has three degrees, uh, one in uh, business administration from his Home University, I believe, which is the University of Saskatchewan. Then he has degrees from two powerhouses. One, of course, is the London School of Economics, and the other is the Indian Institutes of Management, uh, in his case, from Delhi. Uh, he has spent the last 30, 35 years in Asia, uh, and of that, about 25 years at the ADB, where he was for seven years the managing director general. Uh, I should, uh, for transparency and disclosure reasons, I should disclose that he was also my boss for much of that time. Uh, <laughs> At the ADB, I think uh, I will just uh, highlight two aspects uh, of what uh, Mr. Narg, uh, Mr. Narg's contribution, uh, uh, and in fact, one of them is, is developing the cooperative frameworks, uh, regional cooperative frameworks that uh, focused on infrastructure financing, and in, his, in this case, one of the most successful regional cooperation initiatives, the Greater Mekong subregion. But in the financial sector size, he was also res uh, instrumental at the ADB under the leadership of President Kuroda. Uh, uh, in developing the ADB's responses to regional cooperation for both financial sector and, and other, uh, uh, other issues. He was closely involved in the establishment at the ADB of the, uh, the Chiang Mai Initiative, which is now known as the Chiang Mai Initiative Multilateralization. Uh, he, uh, he was also there when uh, the ADB established its uh, surveillance mechanism for the ASEAN countries, a very successful institutional development that has now led to the transfer of that uh, capability to the ASEAN Secretariat. So, without further ado, uh, let me let me welcome Mr. Rajat Mohanag. Just saying, thank you very much. A very generous introduction. A big thank you also to the uh, London School of Economics Asia Forum for inviting me. It's just such a delight to be able to be a part of this forum. This whole day has been tremendously rich. And if uh, Director Calhoun needed any reason why this forum should continue, is this. Thank you very much.
Uh, one of the big challenges of following two eminent speakers such as Professor Goodhart and Andrew Shang is what new to say. So, of course, I can always say I agree with both of them and say thank you, but I don't think that will quite fly. So I'll try to think of something additional or at least to reiterate the same points. Uh, I want to make two broad points. Uh, first, uh, in his excellent presentation, Professor Goodhart very correctly observes the two main weaknesses of the Bretton Woods uh, international monetary regime, the hegemony of the uh, dollar and the asymmetry of the Bretton Woods system. Uh, on the first one, on the hegemony, I totally agree with you, Professor, that uh, the U.S. dollar will continue playing a very central role for a long time for the reasons you have mentioned, though I would say, in line with what Professor Kwa and others have been talking about, I think it is almost inevitable that the world will see a basket of currencies emerge uh, as reserve currencies, uh, maybe not as soon as some of us would like, but still I see a basket of currencies in which the U.S. dollar will, of course, remain uh, but you'd also see elements of euro if the Europeans can get out of the timidity that Kishore was very rightly pointing to. But also Asian currencies, uh, Remnimbi certainly will play an important part. And if India starts to pull above its weight, which I think it should, then the Indian rupee as well and the Japanese yen. Uh, I find your proposal on correcting the asymmetry very interesting, and I, I certainly found uh, the details even more interesting. The numbers one can sort of you know, argue back and forth, but your idea, as you say in your paper, to smuggle in capital controls under the cover of macroprudential counter-cyclical banking policies is absolutely right on. Uh, you combine the virtues of an academic with a policymaker, and I find that, I find that very appealing. Uh, and the idea of imposing taxes or placing additional capital requirements on both surplus and deficit countries, I think uh, is certainly something we should discuss further because we all recognize that it can be welfare-enhancing. Uh, unfortunately, uh, much as I'd like to see what you're proposing happen, and I hope one can talk about it, I'm afraid that they would not be politically feasible. Mm. Uh, this would require a level of international cooperation, uh, certainly in the monetary side, which I'm afraid is not on the table. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, I'm very sympathetic with the view uh, expressed by Governor Raghuram Rajan of India that international monetary cooperation has broken down. And he's not alone in the several uh, emerging markets. Uh, officials, governors have made this point. Uh, and as Andrew put it very well, it really comes from the fact that uh, our dollar, your problem. Uh, and uh, that is certainly something which uh, I'm looking for a polite word, but I can't find it, so I'll just say it goals. Uh, the U.S. Congress refusal to ratify a long-planned quota increase in IMF uh, essentially means that the status quo will continue and the emerging markets will not have the influence and the power that they should. Uh, the Fed has started slowing its uh, QE program, the so-called tapering, and I'm fully comfortable with the point that both you have made that U.S. must follow monetary mm. policy, which is in its own interest. Uh, but I reject the so-called victim argument that some make uh, because it's not true that the emerging markets are complaining now when the QE is being tapering. They complained when the QE was introduced 
for exactly the reason they're complaining now, which is the volatility that these countries have to face. And uh, we've all been a part of this. And uh, this volatility, when the QV was introduced, was on top of a fairly significant fiscal and monetary stimulus, which was already in place. And I don't think that the world has, quite frankly, expressed enough gratitude to China for uh, the 13% GDP stimulus they provided in late 2008-2009, 4 trillion won, which I think played a very important role in stabilizing the, the global, global economy. Uh, so there was a great flurry of coordination. I remember I was a part of it in 2008-2009. For greater economic coordination, G20, we're all in this together. We must sort of you know, make sure the world economy doesn't come apart. And therefore, emerging markets were very strongly encouraged to have a fiscal and monetary stimulus. On top of them came the QE, put the pressure on the currencies, and made it difficult for emerging markets to undertake the sort of reform, structural reforms, which uh, one wanted to. And then, when the economies in the world, thank God, have started to improve and the queue is tapering off, then we get the message, don't be a victim, don't make excuses, you then make the structural reforms which you should have. I draw the conclusion from this with respect to the emerging markets, very much along the lines that that Andrew made, that the emerging markets have to just realize that they're on their own and make sure that the systems are strong so that we don't have to wring our hand saying, saying, you know, people aren't talking to us, they aren't cooperating. And to do that, and I think we learn lessons from what Malaysia did uh, way back in the 90s with the Asian financial crisis is basically to have structural reforms in the financial sector, build up our own reserves, follow macroprudential policies, construct as large a regional self-help or a safety net as possible. Uh, Andrew mentioned, and so did Jaseem, about the Chiang Mai initiative. And I say this not as somebody who is a proponent of Fortress Asia. I'm not talking about we'll draw a moat around ourselves. No, I'm a strong believer in open regionalism, but let us do that from a position of strength. And I think that position of strength was very well articulated by Professor Koa and colleagues in the previous session when we talked about about the shift of the gravity towards towards, uh, Asia. So... Regional cooperation, particularly on the international monetary side, is critical, though it's waning. And I think the only way Asia will be able to lead that is by dealing in a position of strength itself and strengthening our own international monetary, uh, the uh, the internal financial and the monetary systems. Uh, Second point, uh, again, uh, Professor Goodhart, I think, makes a very perceptive comment about the forces which might work to correct the international monetary system, i.e. Uh, energy, which changes the relative price of oil, and uh, issue of demographics. And I would add a third and a fourth, which Andrew has done, which is technology and finance. But though I agree with Professor Goodhart that these two factors alone that he mentioned might cause a rebalancing in favor of the southern hemisphere as from the north, I would nuance it by saying what uh, Andrew has also mentioned, 
to say that this is plausible but not preordained. Uh, this is quite uh, important to recognize that countries do get caught in what's called a middle-income trap. And you can't compete with countries above you because, you know, you are not still up there in the high technology and you're not being able to compete in that segment. And you can't compete with countries below you because your wage rates have gone up and you are no longer as competitive in making shoes or making textiles. Uh, so again, just as I said for the financial sector, uh, I think it's very important that countries take steps which would include uh, having adequate capital, human capital formation, uh, emphasizing inclusive and green growth, which we heard about this morning, uh, having adequate governance and institutional strengthening, and make sure that the countries in this region, emerging markets in general, but certainly in this region, follow macroeconomic policies which enable them to not get caught in the middle-income trap because history is full of examples where countries have done very well. They go up to about $10,000, $12,000 per capita and then plateau off and uh, never quite make it and reach the promised land. So on those two points, um, I essentially agree with what Professor Goodhart and my colleague, my good friend Andrew Sheng have said, but I think it's important that the emerging markets, certainly particularly in Asia, recognize that they have to deal from a position of strength. The economic gravity is shifting eastwards, but it won't happen on autopilot. It won't happen just because we say so or we extrapolate the past. It will happen if we make those issues of reforms that I've mentioned. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Rajat. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, that brings the formal part of our discussion to an end. Uh, and as we've seen, uh, a, a rich set of discussions has taken place. Uh, I'm reminded of something that the late Professor Charles Kindleberger uh, observed about the causes of the 1931 uh, uh, Great Depression, the absence of a hegemon. The, uh, in his view, Britain was not willing to be a hegemon. U.S. wasn't quite ready to be a hegemon. We seem to be in a world, uh, uh, as, uh, as advocated or as, uh, as recounted by our three speakers today, in which the hegemon is, uh, uh, is somewhat absent from the, from the scene or unable and unwilling to take up the old burdens that uh, it took up in the past. The potential hegemons, one is Germany, which uh, for, con for various reasons is deeply unwilling to take up the, its role. Perhaps the future lies in a multi-hegemonic System in which perhaps uh, ultimately China will step forward uh, in the way that it already has, has been doing in terms of its swap lines, its enormous contributions to investment uh, throughout the world. In terms of swap lines, as we all know, Bank Nagara also has a swap line with, uh, with China, with the Bank, People's Bank of China, so one of 26. So now uh, we will move to, uh, we have plenty of time for a good discussion. Uh, in terms of um, the question and answer session, I think what we'll do is we will pick three or four questions first and then ask our respondents to respond to them and then move on uh, to the extent possible. Uh, please uh, raise your hands and identify yourself. Your questions, they must be questions. Please, no comments. Uh, I've been told by the uh, organizers to, to request that you phrase your words as questions. Uh, you must be brief. By brief means, in the first instance that uh, you can't speak longer than the main presenters. <laughs> <laughs>
That's the worst instance. But also try and try and keep your question to half a minute or one minute. I know you're very you're all educated at LSE, so you know how to frame comments as questions. That's all right. I would, we won't uh, stop you. Okay, shall we throw the floor open now? Anybody? Any questions? Um, no, that's the person with the mic. He's not asking. To. Okay, we have uh, one question over here in the third row. The gentleman in the dark, uh, dark jacket. Sir, can you please uh, announce yourself uh, when you speak? Hi, my name is Noah Zaman from Singapore, fellow LSE alumnus. This is a question for Professor Goodhart. You mentioned that the return on capital from capital outflows of current account surplus countries has been historically low. Going forward, given the demographic changes and so forth that you spoke about, what, what would you classify as an appropriate return on capital, and how can these countries, or what should they do to achieve that? Okay. Let's take a couple of more questions, if there are any. Oh, there's one in the back over there. Hi there. Uh, my name is Mujtaba. I'm uh, with the Islamic Finance Council, and currently I'm a student and researcher at NCF in Isra. Um, my question would, I, I suppose, would be uh, to Mr. Jassim, if, if that's possible. Um, no, I don't think it's possible, but go ahead. <laughs> First, is, um, regarding international monetary structures or governance structures, what do you think about having, and what are the drawbacks or drawbacks or the hindrances that we, we, don't, we still don't have an Islamic finance international structure or governance as such. And secondly, um, the Basel III, what do you think the effect of Basel III would be in specifically, especially the capital adequacy on Islamic banks? I'm, I'm going to pass that question to Andrew Sheng, who is probably best prepared to answer it. Okay, what, any, any, uh, Professor Kwa? Thank you. Thank you. When a single country, the hegemon, is the one that issues the world's reserve currency, it gets to extract seniorage and it gets to exploit cheap capital markets for itself. When, as some of you are predicting, and a basket of currencies might emerge to be the world's reserve currency basket, who gains from that? Okay. Let's uh, stop there. But these are three very, uh, uh, very tough questions to take up. And then we'll come to you, Dato, afterwards. Uh, so the first question was, um, and, and frankly anybody can answer, but it was to you, Professor Goodhart, on the return to capital, uh, which is low, uh, and what can countries do to ensure that it rises to an appropriate level. The second question was in relation to uh, with the Basel III implications for uh, Islamic finance. I know Andrew has very strong views on Basel III, so if he wants to take that up. And the third question from Professor Kwa on, on the single currency, if we are now to move to a basket currency, who benefits from it? Professor Goodhart, would you like to start off with the question of your choice? Um, well, let me do the run on the return on capital. Yeah. I yeah. think that there uh, are two issues. Um, the first one is that the return on uh, the capital invested abroad should be at least as high and indeed rather higher than the return that you would get on investing the same amount of funds at home. The reason I say it should be rather higher than the return you get from investing at home is that if you invest at home, you get some of the tax advantages as well. While if you invest abroad, some of the advantages, the tax that is derived 
uh, from the, uh, whatever you're financing abroad goes to the foreign country. So you want a return somewhat higher than you could get domestically. Uh, the other issue, I think, uh, is that uh, central banks' uh, handling of their reserves uh, has traditionally been remarkably uh, conservative. Um, and it's perfectly clear that up to a point, uh, the reserves have to be in relatively liquid form. So if there should be a speculative attack on the currency, uh, that the funds can be mobilized uh, at little loss uh, virtually immediately. But this scale of the funds that many countries have built up uh, are such that after a point, uh, they, I think, would be more wisely invested in a combination of equities, uh, where the equity premium means that you get a much higher return than you do in straight bonds, uh, together with um, a wider range of corporates uh, beyond just the um, uh, U.S. T-bonds. So I think that um, uh, you ought to have the, um, uh, a, a rate of return that is somewhat higher than you would get domestically, and that... Uh, the central banks beyond a point uh, should consider a more widely diversified portfolio of assets, obtaining a somewhat higher return than by simply investing in, in sovereigns in general and USD bonds in particular. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Goodhart. On the move to a basket of currencies, uh, who benefits? Any, any thoughts on that? What, I, mean, I, I take it that the question really is about what is the incentive structure that will lead that uh, to... to uh, uh, yeah. you see, if, if I may come in uh, yeah, and take go ahead. that. But before that, just to say that I completely agree with what Professor Goodhart said about the investment of the reserves. And you know that you yeah. and I have struggled for the last many years in talking to central banks in the region to say what you did after 97 in terms of building up the reserves was excellent, and you should... But sometimes too much of a good thing is bad. And when you've got infrastructure in your own countries and in the region so awfully inadequate, perhaps it's good to invest a fraction of this, just a fraction, just to completely yeah, agree yeah, and, and yeah. endorse what Professor Goodhart said on that. Uh, I think on the uh, basket of currencies, uh, probably the world at large gains. Uh, to me, it's not so much an economic issue. You're quite right. If, if it's only the hegemon with this currency reserve, the hegemon gains. But I, for me, the important thing is when you have a basket of currencies, the political balance, which I think is missing at the moment from, from this whole dialogue, and which enables, therefore, for this approach of my dollar, your problem thing to be more balanced. So it's in that context that I support strongly a basket of currencies moving. Andrew, you want to add anything on that? Yeah, let me, let me tackle this question of Islamic finance because uh, uh, I'm just in the midst of finance, finalizing a paper with uh, Abbas Mirkor, who, as you know, is the NCF uh, professor mm. uh, 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 on Islamic finance, and Ajit Singh from Cambridge University on the future theory and practice of Islamic finance. And I'm not going to get into the Sharia interpretation issues, but what is the core of Islamic finance? And... <clears throat> I want to follow the Kuala Lumpur Declaration, which basically said that Islamic finance, you know, forbids uh, uh, usury, you know, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that we accept, and therefore the contracts are essentially equity contracts, risk-sharing contracts, yeah. not risk 
transfer contracts. Now that makes Islamic finance, if you agree with that interpretation, and of course there are many different interpretations of this, if you agree with that interpretation, Islamic finance is truly an alternative to the current model of what I call the North Atlantic finance model, uh, which is about risk uh, shift. Now that comes down to the heart of the problem, even inclusive of the international monetary system. Because if uh, a bank involves in risk sharing with its customers, right? A borrower becomes an investee, not an, you know, the bank becomes an investor, then the bank automatically needs higher capital mm. than before. So, no problem with that. But here we come to the Basel III issue, right? Now, the, the, the Basel III issue was, to, was a realization that the pre-crisis, the banks got too much leveraged and therefore need to be shackled in some way. And so you add all kinds of stuff into it and then you say, well, Here's, here's the number that you have. But they did not change the model, which was still based on what I call risk weights. And as you know, the theory, the theory of the risk weight is wrong because the risk, you, you assume that one basket of assets is, has risks that are uncorrelated with other baskets. And in reality, in a crisis, all the risks become one. And, and, and therefore, you, know, you really don't have enough capital to meet against these stochastic, very sharp black swan risks that occur. So what essentially comes back down to, for a financial system, under an Islamic finance risk-sharing system is this. You actually don't need full capital. You just need a capital for what you consider to be a normal course of business. Because as this last crisis proved, when thing, a black swan happens, the only people who can take that risk is your central bank. Okay? Because the central bank stands behind, you know, in this very sharp system. And, and because the central bank stands behind it, the system, you know, is resolved, although the losses will then be distributed in a very, very different way. Yeah. So Islamic finance, you know, doesn't need Basel III to call it because, strictly speaking, you know, Basel III would n is really designed for an yeah. interest-based system, risk-shift system, whereas actually, in my personal view, it's my own personal view, Islamic finance needs its own set of, you don't even need to call it Basel III, but a set of capital rules, in which there is a very explicit contract between the banking system and the central bank. That when risk reach a certain level, that risk is then shared with the central bank. That's, that, 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 that's all we're saying. So if that truly happens, the system actually is much more equitable, much more value uh, driven, ethical driven, than the present system, which says it's it's you know uh, heads you win, tails I you know uh, you know tails you lose, right? And 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 in that way you know I shift all the risk to you, and that's the moral problem of the current system, uh, which is by risk shifting, it actually exacerbates the inequality of the system. That is the fundamental problem that I have with the current system as currently designed. And practice. And so, you know, to answer your question, I think that the Islamic finance is, a, is, a, is an alternative, but then that's highly controversial and disputable issue. Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. And just to add to that, so on the, on the capital side, uh, on the liability side, Islamic financial institutions don't have much of a problem with Basel III requirements for higher capital, higher, higher uh, uh, quality capital, and more capital. We have that already. On the, on the uh, asset side, though, there are some issues with the amount of liquid, liquid assets we need because our jurisdictions are not, uh, 
highly liquid uh, as of yet. Uh, but the biggest challenge is really in terms of those uh, issues such as uh, hybrid capital, contingent capital, which takes us into, into subjects which uh, give the Shara interpretation a lot of concern. So uh, I think that would be uh, the small compliment I would add to Andrew, Andrew's thought-provoking and indeed penetrating response to your question. Okay, so we have a, quite a bit of time still left. Uh, any, any, you had a question, uh, did you? Yeah, we need a mic in the front. Uh, anybody else with questions? Okay. Uh, this is a question in relation to quantity easing tapering. Mm -hmm. If you have China, which has surplus capital at this present moment, is there any business, is there any model that uh, can be proposed in terms of how the emerging market countries can work out a deal with China to soften the impact of quantity easing? And this question will probably have political as well as economic aspects. Okay, so that's a very interesting question. Quantitative easing, we are expecting tapering, I take it, uh, under which the Federal Reserve will, will uh, reduce its, uh, its purchases of, of um, long-term uh, bonds. Federal Reserve argues that it should have no impact on uh, the, its monetary policy stance, which is already a very, one of high, highly eased stance. We should not be paying attention to flows. We should be paying attention to stocks. But it doesn't matter. The whole world shakes when the Federal Reserve makes a statement on quantitative easing. So, uh, Professor Goodhart, any thoughts on... Uh, well, the point, the point that you just made is a, is a very valid one. Um, I'm, the analysts in the Fed believe that it's a stock that matters. So they're, they're effectively saying we're still expanding. Yeah, right. um, and we'll go on expanding until effectively the taper means that we're no, no longer buying anything. Mm. But they claim that they're not in any way bringing about a restriction. Well, most of the rest of the world and the markets tend to believe that it's the flows that matter. Mm. So that if you reduce the flows you're actually being more restrictive than you were when you had a higher flow. And that is your remains... Um, it's a, it, there's a remarkable division in that sense. Um, and almost everybody in the market that I know of is a flow person. Mm. And almost everybody who works as an analytical economist in central banks tends to be a stock person. And yeah. they just don't talk to each other. Um, and that, is, that, that in itself is, uh, is really quite remarkable in, in its own way. Um, and there was the, the question of whether uh, the effect of the uh, U.S. taper could be offset mm. by some interaction between the emerging markets and maybe China. Um, and I think that's a very interesting idea. Uh, I would have thought, and I'm totally inexpert in this particular field, that that was something that could be discussed under the heading of the Chiang Mai Agreement. <laughs> it would be something that I would have thought could be brought up in that particular context. I don't, I'm not, don't quite understand why it has not been. Can I try sure, to Andrew, answer please. this one? Um, I think that's a very, very good question. And I try to use it in a slightly uh, unorthodox way of thinking about it. But, you know, here's a very interesting conundrum arose from this crisis. If you think that the world is growing on average at around somewhere between, you know, sort of 2% for the uh, advanced markets and maybe 5 6% for the emerging markets, 
theoretically, if you weight the average, the world's real interest rate, or even the nominal one, assuming inflation is whatever it is, should be around 3, 3 to 4%. Okay? And that the U.S. long bond should therefore reflect that. Well, the Fed and the advanced country central banks uh, increased their balance sheet somewhere between two to four times with no impact on inflation. All right? And this is the, 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 the mystery of monetary uh, behavior. And the very fact they thought that they were going to withdraw caused not a rise in their interest rate, a little bit, but mostly rise in interest rate and devaluation in the emerging markets. So your question is, can the central bank of China or any other country ameliorate this? And the answer is, my view is probably not. Uh, and the reason is that, you know, unless we have a global central bank that does the recycling and is very clear after the Asian crisis and the European crisis, the major shareholder says IMF is not allowed to be a lender of last resort nor allowed to print money. Okay? Only national central banks can do this. Uh, and so the result is national central banks might be able to provide some liquidity, but they will not be able to change very dramatically global interest rates to, to a large extent. So I think the, the, the tra the, my conclusion from all this is that, unfortunately, uh, the, the result of QE and tapering is that advanced markets will not have inflation, not that much, but the emerging markets will bear higher interest rates, higher risk premium, and also higher inflation. And my fear is that because we are at a stage of global warming in which food security balances are very uh, uh, delicate, in emerging markets when food prices start spiking up because of massive drought or whatever, uh, then you will begin to see the emerging markets having social insecurity uh, unrest and high inflation uh, all bundled into one. And that's the, the, the risk that we're going to face over the next 10 years. Thank you. Just Thank you very much. Just, of course, uh, please. Add a I totally agree with you on this issue of the climate change and the food price. But going back to the question that was raised, uh, I think, uh, though it is more a question of perception than reality, as you very rightly said, this is the time for emerging markets to actually come to grips with the structural reforms and changes that they wanted to and didn't, or couldn't, whatever may be. Therefore, I think countries such as India and others really need to look at how to lower inflation, how to lower fiscal deficits, and how to lower current account deficits. I think unless and until we can squeeze those three out, we will not really have real and sustainable growth. So in that sense, I would not want to see USQE being replaced by somebody else's because I think it will ultimately just postpone the reckoning. And this is probably a good ex time to do it, particularly in light of what Andrew has said, because I think the real challenge is going to come from the pressures that we might get from the pressures on the food prices, insecurity, inequality, all the gamut of things which the real economies have to contend with, yes. and the real politics has to contend with. There's one extra thing that I want to say. that I, the, the, the idea about having central bank swaps uh, with the People's Bank of China reminds me a little bit that after the uh, Asian crisis in 97-98 uh, the Japanese came up with an idea of an Asian, Asian regional 
sort of monetary system. Um, And this clearly upset the Americans Mm. very much uh, because they regarded this as a sort of direct challenge uh, on their world economic position. And um, I think that if you were to proceed towards trying to get an arrangement of central bank swaps, which was really likely to be affected, a kind of Asian monetary system centered around the People's Bank of China, uh, that the Americans would, would turn round to you in the Asian countries and say, if you do this, uh, we would take this as a very unfriendly act. So that I think that it does... You do have to think... Um, I, this is another of the, the interrelationships uh, between monetary regimes and monetary economics and simply the power structure within the world more widely. Rajat, would it be revealing a secret if I told the, people, the audience here that the Chiang Mai initiative is a way around this American response to the American <laughs> and to the Asian monetary fund? Well, Professor Goodhart sort of, and I think, articulated best that, you know, there was talk about the Asian monetary fund in 97, 98, precisely for the reasons that we felt that the current arrangements were not serving our needs. And the way to do it was to say never again and we'll build up. And there was political realities which had to be faced. And the CMIM and then the expansion of the CMI and doubling of it a couple of years back was exactly for that reason. And I think, as I said in my presentation, and so did Andrew, that I think that is probably one way, without talking explicitly about Asian Monetary Fund, but to have enough swap within the region, with China playing a very important anchor, to get around that issue. Okay. I I think if I just supplement this, you know, I was part of the team that during the Asian crisis over the swaps issues. And, of course, a lot of market people, well, you know, the swaps exist, but they've never been exercised. That's exactly the point. So... So what does it really mean? I think this crisis, the 2007-2008 crisis, actually demonstrated that these swaps can be extremely powerful. Let me give you an illustration. As you know, when Lehman failed, Lehman was not a trade finance bank. Okay? And of course, you know, the trade dropped 15%, you know, peak to trough, because trade finance dropped 20%. And why did trade finance drop? Because trade finance was automatically self-liquidating, uh, you know, three months, six months, gone. And of course, you know, the, 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 there were people who said, well, you know, this was because of the collapse of demand. Well, demand collapses. If you don't lend money to me, how can I buy, right? So if the trade finance was continued, right. so, you know, we need a mechanism in Asia that protects Asia's major engine of growth, which is trade. We all accept that area. And so all that trade you know, uh, central bank swaps really does is to say, look, if there was a shock because of another layman fails for whatsoever reason, uh, on a bilateral basis, that trade can still continue because as long as it is trade-related, we can finance it. Right. And, uh, and, 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 and that way, the, the, you know, the, the emerging markets could be cushioned against another shock of a layman-type uh, okay. situation. That, 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 that's the okay. fundamental rationale behind that swap. We're running out of time. If I can just maybe uh, raise one, question, one issue that has not been discussed but which Professor Goodhart uh, touched on, demography. And demography has many different aspects uh, we, and uh, many sometimes contrasting aspects. But it starts, I think, for many of us with the, with the phrase that demography is not destiny. At the same time, we all worry about the fates of countries like Japan, which are aging rapidly. But then there are people like Danny Kwa who paints a wonderful 
picture of the future of China as it ages. 350 million Chinese doing Tai Chi together early in the morning. <laughs> that is surely uh, a force for good in the world. So what is our perspective on that? Is demography not destiny? Is it destiny? Is it something that uh, we shouldn't really worry about in the way that many, many of us do? Any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that we're all going to be like Japan uh, because we're all going to age. Um, and I think that Japan, in some ways, has actually handled a combination of its aging uh, and its initial financial difficulties much better than the rest of the world has previously been prepared uh, to recognize. And as the aging occurs, I think it will be, I think it will be, it will be very difficult. Um, one aspect of aging, of the aging population, is you're all, all going to have to be like me, which is you're all going to have to work till you're sort of 75 or over. Uh, because, you know, unless you're going to work for very much longer, uh, the tax burden on the working population is going to be so large that it is going to cause really massive distortions and be very socially difficult. Um, but... We're going to, I'm, this is one of the things this is going to mean is going to have to change the balance uh, of medical research in that the, it's, we're going to have to shift uh, the balance of research from worrying about the diseases that kill people in sort of late middle age like heart diseases and cancer and put much, much more research into problems uh, of, I forget what it was, but I think it was <laughs> dementia and Alzheimer's. <laughs> Uh, if, I, if I may uh, take the other side of demographics, I think you've raised a very important point, and Professor Goodhart has articulated it very well, and that is countries which will have young population, it has been somehow assumed almost axiomatically that that's a demographic dividend. Mm. My point is that that could easily turn out to have a demographic curse if you don't build the human capital, exactly. if you don't have the LSEs of this world building that up if you don't have yeah. the skills that this population will need, and you don't have the income-generating opportunities, employment opportunities, if you don't have those, that same demographics, which can be a dividend, can actually be a curse and cause some very serious problems. Ladies and gentlemen, I think uh, we have reached uh, almost the end. Uh, just one point about Professor Goodhart talking about working longer later in life. Uh, I tried to count how many articles and books he had published, not over his career, it's too many, but the last 14 years, about 90, an average of at least six a year, but the average is increasing. It's, it was nine last year. So, so working longer in life and being more productive go hand in hand uh, with Professor Goodhart. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've had a wonderful session. Uh, three very distinguished speakers, Professor Goodhart, Tansri Andrew Sheng, and Mr. Rajat Nag. Can you join me now in a, in a round of applause for a wonderful session? Thank you. Thank you.